So, Jay, did Magneto basically spend the Silver Age just heckling the X-Men? Oh, heck no, Miles. He got around. Avengers, Fantastic Four. It's funny, I just think of him as such an X-Men-specific villain. Well, eventually he became one, sure. But in the days of dramatic exposition, do you really think Magneto was gonna wait till they were free before trying to invade Atlantis? And wait, you mean he... Let alone Latveria. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 337 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to Excalibur. It feels like we just did Excalibur, but I also realize that my sense of time has been utterly annihilated by the last year and change. Yeah, time is really, really gone, and I suspect it'll be con- it'll continue to not quite function in its normal manner for at least a few more months, at least for me, just because of the work I'm doing because it's at home and very, very independent. Legit, yeah. No, I think uh, that that's definitely part of it for me as well. Uh, but also, we've just done so much Excalibur, and this episode, we are going to almost get to Excalibur century mark, but not quite. That's right. We should note going in that we are not going to be getting through quite a whole story arc today because this story arc ends within the bowels of Onslaught. Not literally. Oh, man. Uh, I'm sure you've heard that uh, theory that in Avengers, the Avengers could have solved the whole Thanos problem much more quickly if Ant-Man just crawled up his button and then grew real fast. I have not heard that theory, but yeah, I I guess so. It goes along with the D&D thread I was randomly reading on Reddit today, talking about all the different ways PCs can abuse magic items, and a lot of those ways involve items that grow very quickly, and just, like, feeding them to dragons and stuff, and then all of a sudden, bam, a ladder pops out of the dragon's neck. It's all very gruesome, but kind of clever. It's very Wolverine. It is very Wolverine. Maybe Wolverine is a D&D magical item. That would kind of make sense. Yeah. Well, anyway, Wolverine's not in this arc. He's too busy having less and less of a nose over in his own book. This is an arc about Excalibur. It's been a while since we covered them. What's Excalibur's deal right now? So Excalibur, sometimes called Excalibur due to character limits, is one of the best swords in most Final Fantasy games and often does holy elemental damage. Sir, this is a Wendy's. Okay, fine. Or whatever Wendy's is or called across the pond. Anyway, Excalibur is a superhero team mostly composed of mutants, or entirely composed of them depending on which writer you ask, based out of Muir Island off the coast of Scotland. The team includes former X-Men Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, and Colossus. British maybe mutants Brian Braddock, formerly Captain Britain and or Britannic, and Megan. The techno-organic organism Douglock, who's complicated and whom we forgot to mention last time we were doing a team roundup. We apologize, he's technically Warlock. Wolfsbane, formerly of the New Mutants and of X-Factor. Pete Wisdom, former shadowy government agent and Shadowcat's boyfriend. And Sorceress Amanda Sefton, at least when the comic remembers she exists. Same with Lockheed, he's a little purple dragon. So Excalibur is not technically government-sponsored. Very, very different from X-Factor there, but they do have a relationship with the British government. Specifically, the Weird Happenings Organization, which is kind of like if the FBI mostly dealt with space invaders and alternate universes, or more directly, kind of like UNIT from Doctor Who. 
Now, one of the Who bigwigs is a scientist by the name of Alistair Stewart. And Alistair was a longtime friend and confidant of Excalibur, so he even went with them on the cross-time caper. We last saw Alistair taking care of mutated children, the Warpies, who had been captured by another British intelligence organization. These days, Who has been replaced by Black Air, a less wacky and more evil version of the same. That's actually Pete Wisdom's old organization, and they have clashed hard with Excalibur more than once. Now, they are not the only powerful group operating from the shadows we're going to be dealing with today. Well, as it happens, Psylocke's dad is also Captain Britain's dad, because, you know, they're twins. And given that he lived his entire life, as far as we know, when he wasn't on Otherworld, in the UK kind of makes you wonder what's happening with the Hellfire Club across the pond. And if you do have that question on your mind, boy, do we have a story for you. A story that begins in Excalibur number 96, Fireback. This is written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Bob Wyacek, colored by Ariane Lenchwek, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. It's got a very stylish Art Deco cover. Now, first and foremost in this issue, uh, the, the, the main point of this issue, in fact, is that Nightcrawler has a new look. He has buzzed his hair, and he now sports a soul patch. It's a very, very Age of Apocalypse um, coiffure. Now, according to Kurt... It was Amanda's idea. Apparently, she saw a man with a similar look on the last flight she worked. And this makes me wonder, is this look based on someone specific from 1996? I mean, I don't know, I barely remember 1996. I was small. So, I have, I have a no-prize theory here. You know how, when they were all connected to the time stream via Amanda, she saw glimpses of them from alternate timelines? Okay. Yeah, I think she just saw AOI, AOA Kurt and thought he was hot. Oh, okay, well, that makes some sense. Uh, I guess she didn't notice the fact that he was kind of murderous and scary. You know, maybe that's part of the appeal. But anyway, that, that she saw him and then just made up the, the story about being a passenger on a flight, and being like, you should do this. You should, you, should, you should shave your head, you should grow a soul patch. <laughs> I mean, I'm not so sure about Amanda's taste, but I, I love Kurt with, like, the longer, shaggier hair, and while I am a noted beard aficionado, soul patches slash goatees without the mustache part, I don't know, it takes a special face to pull those off, and I'm not sure that Kurt has that face. This is also leading into an era when every goddamn male character in Marvel has this look. Oh man, do you remember when Ultimate Wolverine had a soul patch, and then over in the 616, one of the artists forgot that that was just Ultimate Wolverine, and so 616 Wolverine also had a soul patch for, like, a single issue? I do. I treasure that memory, as I treasure every memory of Wolverine making bad choices. That's a lot of memories. It is. It is. So, Kurt is not the only one with a new look. That's right. Megan has a new costume. And... I think I would like this costume much, much better if Pacheco knew how to draw boobs, because I, it's really distracting how much he doesn't. I mean, I love Carlos Pacheco's art overall, but yeah, there's some, like, attack cleavage going on here. I'm, I'm concerned. That's not even cleavage. I don't know what's happening there, but it's, it's not, I mean, Megan's a metamorph. She can, she can probably do stuff like that, but it's, it's not really a thing that happens with human bodies. She's not technically human, as you alluded to, but yeah, I agree. That being said, the costume itself, let's talk a little about that, because I have two very different opinions of this same costume based on the two pencilers of the comics we're going to be talking about here. Well, and even more the colors for me, because this version is okay, 
And the version that's going to show up next issue is great. The thing is, I think they're the same costume. So we have something kind of similar to Megan's previous costume, which is like a green bodysuit that um, kind of leaves her her upper chest and shoulders bare and some long green sleeves. But this version also includes yellow gauntlety things with little buckles on them and a yellow belt and some yellow armory something over her upper torso. The whole bodice of it is yellow. In this and I'm not a huge fan of that. Um, later on, we're going to see it see it drawn drawn mostly in green, and I think it actually works very very well in that form. Yeah, yeah, in that form, which is drawn by Casey Jones, the penciler of the next issue, uh, it just looks like more of a reasonable '90s update of her previous outfit, which I think is totally valid. So it still looks kind of old fashioned and a little bit otherworldly with the green which I think is a really fundamental part of Megan's look. Like, she should look like she could... Well, I guess not not pre-Raphaelite, because that's, that's, a, that's a very, very specific other thing. But she should look like she... She should look like she's from an ambiguous era and just stepped out of, like, the illustrations from a volume of The Idols of the King. I feel good about this statement, yeah. Pete Wisdom has a new look, too. And his look is underwear, because Lockheed, who is a jealous little shit, has stolen and destroyed all of Pete's clothes. Okay, I love this running gag. I love how much Lockheed hates Pete Wisdom since Pete and Kitty started dating. But what I love even more is that Lockheed keeps basically cussing Pete out, speaking completely coherent English, and nobody believes Pete that Lockheed can talk. It's such a great running gag, and it works so well. I mean, okay, it does make one wonder what was up with that issue where Lockheed was in space uh, talking and rhyming couplets about why he walked out on his wife. But, you know, that's fine. That's fine. We don't really need to no-prize this. We can just say that X-Men is wacky sometimes, and that's okay. Yeah, Lockheed functions by Lockheed's own rules. Exactly. Anyway, fashion aside... Remember Alistair Stewart? I do! So, he's... Stumbles up, not to Excalibur's base, but to the Xavier Mansion, panickedly seeking refuge from Black Air and a means to contact Excalibur, both to warn them and for a ride home. I appreciate that Alistair does go to the X-Men first. I mean, I'm always a fan of when the X-Universe seems a little more cohesive, but also it makes sense. I mean, we haven't seen Alistair in a long time. Excalibur relocated to Muir Island well after the last time Alistair saw them, so he has no idea where they are. Also, he's fleeing a British organization, so it kind of makes sense that he'd do that in another country. That's reasonable. Yeah, we last saw him in Excalibur number 65 toward the end of Alan Davis's run. That was that Cloud Nine Warpies story. Jay, do you remember the villain's amazing, amazing name? Ooh, was that Nigel Orpington Smythe? Yeah, Nigel Orpington Smythe. That's just fun to say. It really is. So anyway, Kurt and Megan head out in the brand new Moonlight Flit. This is the fancy medical ship that Brian's been working on building to pick up Alistair, and once they've got him aboard, of course they get attacked by Black Air helicopters. Um, which they take down expediently, mostly thanks to Megan's fucking spectacular elemental powers. Uh, Jay, could I get you to read this outstanding bit of narration describing those powers? I can do that. She makes the electromagnetic fields of the chopper's electronic hardware go away. She stops short of subtracting the electromagnetic field from the pilots. She's not here to kill anyone. 
And then she basically scolds the other pilots into just diving out of their choppers with parachutes, and then delightedly compares herself to Sigourney Weaver when she comes back to her team. I love Megan, and one of the things I really appreciate about this run is that she totally gets a chance to shine on her own. Like, this run recognizes that Megan is probably the most powerful member of Excalibur, and with Brian Braddock having decided that he doesn't want to be a superhero anymore, Megan really gets a chance to shine on her own, and that's awesome. Yeah, well, Megan has unquestionably been the most powerful member of the team for a fairly long time, but as you said, she'd been kind of doing it from Brian's shadow, and seeing her step out into the light's great. It's also really nice seeing Brian kind of step into more of his own distinct role, because as you may recall, listeners, he was a reluctant Captain Britain to begin with. He was the guy who chose the Amulet of Right over the Sword of Might, who was a scientist who really just wanted to understand things, and got sucked into this whole superhero deal, and with it, massive, massive, massive amounts of trauma that have largely defined his life since. Yeah, and after coming back from the time stream and spending a while as Britannic, which I think we can all agree was perhaps not a great story move, now he's going back to what he always wanted to be, which is just a guy that does science-y stuff. There's a quote about him having made the Moonlight Flit that I think uh, sums it up pretty well. It's got a lot of him in it. He doesn't want to fight anymore. He just wants to fix things. Well, Brian may just want to fix things, but what he gets is Shinobi Shaw. That's right, he's calling to see if British people do the sex. So, Shinobi Shaw, for anybody unfamiliar with one of our very favorite X-Men characters, is on the American branch of the Hellfire Club. He has been for a while, ever since he sort of but not really killed his dad. Oh, he's not just there, he's the Black King. Yes, he's the Black King that absolutely, totally knows what sex is, and therefore everything sexy around him is not just because he's hoping that someone will let slip the answer to that question, it's because, you know, he just loves sex. Whatever it is. We like to pretend that he doesn't know what sex is, because it's pretty funny, and also because, yeah, he comes across as that kind of guy. Anyway, why is Shinobi calling Brian? I told you to find out if British people do sex. What is the additional reason that Shinobi has for calling Brian? Ah, fine. Um, he, he wants Brian to join the British branch of the Hellfire Club, which is up to some dirty business. And that is dirty business that we, the readers, know because we've seen a few behind-the-scenes glances involves both Sebastian Shaw, Shinobi's deposed father, and Black Air. Also, one of the inner circle of the London Hellfire Club has been replaced by a guy named Mountjoy. Remember Mountjoy? Captain Britain doesn't, but fortunately he's got access to all of Xavier's files, so he can read about him. Mountjoy is from his time. The mid-21st century, by all accounts. He qualifies as a shapeshifter, but a closer description would be shape-stealer. He absorbs live bodies into his own and can use their form while, um, digesting them. Yeah, Mountjoy is a bad, bad guy. He jumped back in time along with one of the baddies that Bishop was chasing. And he's been killing his way around ever since. Now, at the end of the Bishop miniseries, he was turned over to law enforcement, and we learn here that he promptly escaped. Because of course he did. The first page of this issue actually does open with a close-up of Mountjoy's evilly smiling, glowing-eyed face. So, uh, Pacheco, Carlos Pacheco, actually co-created Mountjoy in the Bishop miniseries. And so it kind of makes sense that Mountjoy is showing up again here, despite the fact that Excalibur has nothing to do with Bishop. 
and the way Pacheco draws Mountjoy, I am totally fine with that. This dude is creepy as hell. He's like this long-haired, widow's peaked evil, psychically cannibalistic aristocrat, and I love him. I mean, I hate him, but I love him. His powers are also incredibly cool looking on the page. Oh yeah, where he'll absorb somebody and like their own faces will be trying to pull their way out of the hybrid form. You can see a lot of that in the visual companion to the episode where we covered the Bishop miniseries, and I'll link to both of those in the companion to this episode. That takes us to Excalibur number 97, Counterfire. You may notice a theme to all of these issue titles. This one is written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Casey Jones, inked by Tom Simmons, colored by Ariane Lenchweck, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comacraft. Now, while Megan and Kurt are dealing with Alistair, Kitty and Rain take the Midnight Runner to give Brian a lift to the Hellfire Club. And I think we need to talk about Brian's outfit that he, he chooses to wear for his introduction to the Hellfire Club um, and his, his claiming of, of, of the seat ancestrally owed to him. Because he's wearing, he's, he's wearing a blue, navy blue suit, the white shirt, and a pale pink necktie. And all I can think is that he's, he's, he, he must think that he's about to show up and become Black Bishop of the local yacht club. <laughs> or, or perhaps the Wasp Bishop of the Hellfire Club. Okay, you jest, and I agree this is hilarious, but I also think it serves a story purpose. It shows that Brian doesn't actually give a shit about the way he comes off. He's just going into the situation with utter confidence. It also shows that the London Hellfire Club really doesn't have its shit together as far as dress code. Oh, they really, really don't. But, you know, at the same time, like, I think part of why I like this part of the story is the way it acknowledges Brian's complicated past as he goes to become the Black Bishop of the Yacht Club. As he steps into the sky, his powers ignite. The powers of the Captain Britain he once was. A fusion of wild genes and old magic. But he had given the names and costumes and wars up. He was happy just to build things. He can hear the deep hammering of war in the distance. He fears it. Wild genes and old magic. I love that. Like, okay, we have learned that Warren Ellis is... Not necessarily a good person, but God, he has a way with words. The narration in this run of Excalibur is just stellar sometimes. It's appropriately purple, which is very important sometimes. Exactly. Now, that fear doesn't stop the good captain from blazing on in to claim his seat, and the Black Queen, Emma Steed, yes, we see what you did there, is very into this, as is everyone but the Red Bishop, who challenges Brian to a duel, so Brian casually knocks him over and takes um, his, his rightful place as the Black Bishop of the London Hellfire Club, pink tie and all. I really love the London Hellfire Club Inner Circle's designs. Like, we don't get a lot of details about some of these characters, but... They are visually distinct enough to still be interesting. Like, we have the Red King, who's this dark-skinned man with face tattoos and long hair and this, like, loose red clothing with this cool sword at his hip. There's the Red Queen, who's this pink-haired woman in also flowing but revealing red clothing, because, you know, Hellfire Club. Tall boots, these really, like, long needle-like fingernails. The Black King has this awful bowl cut, a tight black turtleneck and vest and stuff, a, a cigarette holder, a pistol— and the Black Queen, that is Emma Steed, is dressed in, like, this black cat suit with a whip, which I guess makes sense, because, you know, like you alluded to, she's based on the character from the old British show, The Avengers. Well, unnamed after both of them. 
Right, after both of the Avengers leads. And then there's Scribe, who's this person all in grayish-white, very angular, doesn't quite seem human. So I like that they're all so distinct. I like that they all each have their own little signature weapon. Like, the action figure collector from when I was 10 years old in me is very pleased by this fact. I find it interesting how far the Hellfire Club has gone from its extremely rigid aesthetic when we first saw it. That's true of the American branch, too, that from when we've lately seen them. Um, like, originally the Hellfire Club all dressed in, like, the same rough motif, and now they're all over the map. Yeah, I mean, they still all look like slightly wicked aristocrats, but in very different directions from person to person. Yeah, no, they're, they're general. They, they, they've gone from, like, kinky rich cosplayers to just kinky rich people. <laughs> Good way of putting it. Now, meanwhile on Muir Island, Alistair gets debriefed, but not like that. And the team learns that Black Air is bad, bad news in all of the ways we knew. Plus, they killed and dissected the Warpies, which I'm really upset about. Yeah, like those delightful, innocent, funny-colored children from the Excalibur story where Alistair, like, was left in charge of them, and they were all going to have a good life, and they were all going to grow up and, and be weird together, and, and now they're all dead. God damn it. Yeah, this is really fucked up. Black hair is awful. It's extra awful. And um, they've also got some kind of nefarious plans with the London Hellfire Club that will allow the Hellfire Club to run the country from the shadows. Which brings me to one of my favorite bits of weirdo UK trivia, which is probably not actually weird if you're from the UK, but if you're from the US might be, which is that the United Kingdom has something called a shadow cabinet that is an official government body. Whoa, does that mean part of the UK government is like spooky ghosts? I'd like to believe so. Um, that's not actually the case, but it is in my heart. Uh, legit. Actually, I don't know. They still have the peerage there. Probably part of their government is also spooky ghosts, but I don't think it has anything to do with the shadow cabinet. Hmm. As our British listeners can attest, Jay, you and I are experts on all aspects of British history and culture. The only country it's funnier to make things up about is Canada. <laughs> Canada. Now, there's one te- member of the team, not counting Amanda, who doesn't appear in this story, we haven't checked it with, and that is Douglock. Douglock does not have a new costume, but he does have a new outlook. He explains some of this to Moira McTaggart. Since my creation, I've wanted a reconciled position between my dual nature, the mechanical logic of the alien phalanx, and this template form of dead mutant Doug Ramsey. I should never have fought for the reconciliation, you see. You can't force order on something as chaotic as personality, which is formed by random events and linkages. I've set my brain to access and link various experiences and ideas at complete random just to see what happens. It was quite a paradigm shift to come to that conclusion. Like people, I should just see what happens. I shall either come out of it with an integrated personality or I shall not. Do not worry, Mora. Everything will be fine. I want to watch the sun go down. Which he does until a black air airplane flies overhead, harpoons him from the sky, and drags him off. Which brings us to Excalibur number 98, Fireflies. This issue is written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Bob Wyacek, colored by Ariane Lenchowek, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. 
This cover is burned into my brain. I'm pretty sure I stopped buying comics at this point, but it's just a picture of Nightcrawler, not only with his new short haircut and little beard, but his new costume just jumping through the air looking badass. So maybe we should just start talking about that new costume. It's a slingshot and a mantle. It... It, it kind of is. Yeah, it's it's surprisingly skimpy. So he's got his boots and gloves, of course. And there's this like slightest hint of a leotard connected to this tiny cloak he's wearing. But it's also flowing enough to be kind of badass and swashbucklery. So he's just the most scantily clad swashbuckler ever. The leotard is also almost exactly the color of his fur. So clearly it's supposed to create the illusion that he's totally naked except for his cape. Hmm. One fully nude Kurt Wagner. It's also, the, the, the mantle part is kind of baffling, because it's not really a collar, and the second he turns upside down, it's gonna be over his head. Unless it's secured to that unitard thing somehow, and then just the, uh, the, the triangular bit at the bottom will be over his face, and he won't be able to see. I mean, it's clearly based on his previous costume, that iconic Dave Cockrum black and red look that he's worn more often than not. I think it's a pretty cool 90s update, to be honest. Like, it's not practical, you're totally right, but it does look rad. I'm not as much a fan of it as you are. I think it, um, I think it looks like he went to his mom and was like, can you make me a Nightcrawler costume? And she was like, um, we can try. Wait, which mom? Like, Mystique, who would be manipulating him all the way, or Margali Sardos, who would just use him to achieve magical power? Trying to imagine which I can picture more easily with a bunch of felt and, like, glue. Neither. Yeah. Mystique trying to be, like, class mom would be pretty funny, though. Oh god, she would just send enough cupcakes for the class and they would be set to poison everybody but Kurt so that he would get the best grades because everyone else would be dead? She's helpful. She is. She's not around for this story, though, but Kurt is, and Kurt is not happy. Our fencing with black air stops right here. Excalibur came here to Muir Island to do some good, to help the world rather than fight with it and brush away the debris. I am loath to put us back into ongoing combat situations, but as team leader, I cannot allow these people to mock us like this. And there is this great, great page of the team looking troubled and serious with a view screen of Douglock's screaming face behind them. And Kurt, wearing that kind of harsher-looking new costume, just confidently, steelily meeting their gaze. It's a very different side of him than we often see, but actually, like we were discussing with Cy Spurrier last episode, it all fits. Kurt is multifaceted, and this is one of those facets. It's just one that we don't see very often, this cold anger. Well, and in a lot of ways, he's a character who's much closer to his AOA counterpart personality-wise than our most. They've got a lot more in common um, in terms of attitude. I mean, Kurt, our Kurt, 616 Kurt, has a lot more compassion. But beyond that, there's kind of the same steel core. Yeah, I think you're totally right. So Black Air is behind this, and of course the member of Excalibur that knows the most about Black Air is the guy that used to work for them, Pete Wisdom. Right. Now, Wisdom says everything Black Air acquires goes through their acquisition station, and from there to London headquarters. So, Douglock is at one of those. And Kurt figures, okay, even if they get the wrong location first, 
fuck it. They are going to make a mess. And I love the way Kurt does anger. Like, he's not berserk like Wolverine or chaotic like X-Force. Even the show of force that he's planning is calm and deliberate and a team effort. Like, his anger, I don't know, I called it cold before, but maybe hard would be a better word, because I don't think cold is something that ever comes through with Kurt. Edged, precise. Yeah. Focused. Yeah. So it's off to the acquisition station in the Midnight Runner. And I love this because Kitty Pride is able to get into Black Air's computer network by using a cell phone to dial their modem. Oh, 1996. Hack the planet, Kitty. Hack the planet. Okay, I will take every opportunity to bring up one of my favorite shows from the 90s that I barely remember and probably doesn't hold up, VR5, where there was this woman who could, like, hack into people's dreams and subconscious minds by calling them on the phone and then hanging up the receiver on the receiver of her dial-up modem, and it was great. Uh, well, maybe it was great. Maybe it was actually terrible. I'm scared to watch it again to find out. That was basically how the internet worked in those days. I mean, pretty much. So... Kitty's hacking skills, with a Z, give the team a map so that Kurt can safely teleport them all in. And of course, each team member has their own job. You know, various types of destruction or infiltration or whatever. Kurt is like a surprisingly effective leader. Jay, do you remember way back in the day in Claremont's run when Nightcrawler took over as team leader for the X-Men for a few issues and was god-awful at it and Kitty ended up taking over even though she was a kid? I do, and that's happened since as well. Yeah, and like, I don't know, he's really grown into that leadership role, and I completely buy it. I think it's been organic growth during his time in Excalibur. He's good with vengeance, and he's good with a team where there's not pushback. I think that's the thing that he's consistently had the most trouble dealing with, is basically navigating authority over conflict. And here, he's leading a group that's entirely focused and that's entirely willingly following him. Absolutely. And this comes through in the art, too. I want to give a shout out to Pacheco's panel composition. Like, there are no wasted panels here. As every character does their own little job that Kurt assigns them, like, they're all very efficiently, actively doing it when we see them, whether it's smashing or phasing or hacking or whatever. Like, everybody is clearly operating at the peak of their skills. And just the panel layout itself, the choice of what angles to show them from, what points in their actions to show them at, totally makes that clear. So as they search the complex, they're also downloading all of Black Air's data. And what they discover finally at the very end of that is that Doug Locke is not there. He's already been transferred to London. So Excalibur gives the Black Hair staff, like, five minutes to evacuate before they blow the place sky high. And I appreciate that this is Excalibur. This isn't, like, X-Force or something. So they actually do make sure that all of the Black Hair people have really evacuated before they blow it up. But when they do, once again, it's Megan being badass and the narration making that clear. Megan raises her aspect once more, reaching out to the earth below with anger in her touch. They have taken part of her family away and hidden him well. The world screams with her pain. It opens its mouth wide to cry out loud and swallows the acquisition station whole. The world takes a breath and the entire installation is sucked down its gullet into its fiery belly. And to his credit, Carlos Pacheco does a great job of drawing a gigantic goddamn explosion. But I think that narration really, really sells it. I think that's the thing with Megan's powers. Like, they're not ill-defined exactly. It's very clear what they can do, but they can do so much that you kind of need to 
have a way of getting the specificity of these powerful gestures across. In the meantime, at Black Hair headquarters, the technicians are dissecting Douglock. They're removing his skinned head from his body, and as they look into his robot brain, they find information on the legacy virus. And Douglock kind of sort of wakes up during this surgery. I have returned to assist. What is the purpose of this? Zero? 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 Because remember, way back in the day, even before the Phalanx Covenant, Zero, the robot assistant of Strife, Strife being the creator of the Legacy Virus, had managed to get that information into Douglock's head. So Douglock, like Cable, is one of the keys to the Legacy Virus, which will never be fully followed up on at all. Instead, Colossus will just uh, inject himself with a thing and that'll cure the Legacy Virus. This bothers me because that's the thing, like the Douglock plot, Douglock having the legacy virus info in his brain because he was able to see the humanity in another robot, that robot was able to see the humanity in him. That's cool. That's poignant. There's a link to strife. Similarly with Cable, there's a link to strife. And so when the resolution to the legacy virus plot ends up being honestly kind of random, I feel like that's a loss. Yeah, I agree. Ah, I shake my fist at 90s continuity for the 4,000th time. But do you shake your fist at Excalibur number 99, fire with a fire? I do. And uh, the target of my ire is written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Casey Jones, inked by Tom Simmons, colored by Ariane Lenshoek, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So the team is back on Muir Island after impressively blowing up the acquisition station of Black Air. And Wisdom tells them about Scratch, an agent that they found out a little bit about in the computer data that they downloaded. Scratch is the Black Air agent that took Douglock. And we learned that Scratch and Pete Wisdom have a bit of a history together. Both of, the, both of them were mutant operatives, but Wisdom at least only killed killers. He's got some logic behind that. They were already in the lifestyle, you know? They knew the score. Scratch killed anything that moved. And Scratch and Wisdom had especially been rivals ever since years ago. Pete nearly beat Scratch to death. I think he says he half-ripped his face off after Scratch was just making lighthearted jokes about a bunch of innocents that he murdered who were just sort of in the way when Scratch was on a mission. Scratch is not okay. He's, he's super, super evil. Like, there are those villains that you can really get into their head and see where they're coming from, like Magneto or Haven, and then there are ones that are just purely evil and utterly unsympathetic, and Scratch is totally one of those. He's also got a big sun in the middle of his face. I guess Pete Wisdom ripped his face off, and so they figured they'd have to replace it with a neat big tattoo? Sure, why not? Well, the next step for Excalibur is to hit up Blacker headquarters. But Kurt talks about how they need to be careful. He wants to make sure they don't come off as terrorists. I mean, they're not X-Force. They're not the MLF. He doesn't want their team to end up outlaws. And I appreciate this. I appreciate that, you know, Kurt is calm enough to realize, oh, oh, that would make things much harder if everyone was trying to arrest us and beat us up all the time because we just looked like bad guys. Like, that, that's not our job. That's not what we want. We work out of a freaking medical facility. Fortunately, thanks to Megan's careful reading of the stolen files, they've got solid proof 
of what Black Air was doing, that Black Air was trafficking bribe money from the Hellfire Club to the government to further empower Black Air. And that, in turn, means that Pete can leak that info to his old spy friends, the ones we met in the pub a few issues ago, and they can use it to ruin Black Air. I like this. I like that Excalibur is fighting smart. The espionage angle is something Ellis really introduced to the book. There'd been a little bit of it before, but not much. But as soon as Pete Wisdom and Black Air showed up, there's a ton. And that combined with the existing superheroic feel of the book and the more recent scientific feel of the book, it works. It makes the team feel, I don't know, for lack of a better word, cultured, I guess. It makes them feel more connected to the world that they're working in and around. Yeah, yeah, that that's great. I mean, it gives the book its own distinct feel, which is something that X-Books don't always have. We get this great spy dialogue as Wisdom makes his calls and smokes like a million cigarettes, passing various sticky notes with phone numbers over to Kitty. Okay, so Pete Wisdom, I know he's criticized as just being like a Warren Ellis self-insert character, but... I really love him in Excalibur. Like, I think he's a core, super important part of this era of the book. Like, I would not take him off this team. Yeah, he's a really fun character, and he's a character who other writers have done really cool things with since. I always enjoyed him in uh, Captain Britain and MI-13. That was the one where Captain Britain and Blade and some other people had to fight vampires on the moon. Do you remember that one? Yes. Listeners, if you haven't read Captain Britain and MI-13, it's great. It also has some of the coolest Megan stuff that I've ever seen in a comic. It's just so much fun. I wish it had lasted forever. Also fighting vampires on the moon. I've got nothing bad to say about that. So, in London, the Black Queen, the aforementioned uh, Ms. Emma Steed, finishes briefing Brian on what the Hellfire Club is up to these days. So, speaking of Emma Steed... And the British TV show from back in the day that she's clearly a reference to. While I was doing research for this episode, I found out something kind of cool, which is that in America, any comics or spinoffs based on the old Avengers British TV show can't call themselves the Avengers. Marvel's got that. So they have to be called something like Steed and Peel or whatever. But it's sort of the opposite in the UK. So the Marvel Avengers movie had to be called Avengers Assemble instead. So that's neat. Culture is fascinating, where it intersects with pop culture and capitalism. Yay. Wait, no. Uh, also, random note, Emma Steed here, the Black Queen, she's actually the Earth-616 version of Damask, that character who was working for Apocalypse and joined up with Nightcrawler in Excalibur from the Age of Apocalypse. We'll see her use her powers in issue number 100, but I thought I would throw that in here because it makes me happy. I like Damask. That's somehow extra weird. That she's a reference to the old Avengers TV show? Well, just that, that she's that she's both of those things. You know, uh, we keep talking about multifaceted characters, and she's multifaceted. Those are her two facets. Okay, then. So, the narration mentions that while Brian's been talking to the Black Queen, which is to say Damask, which is to say a reference to an old TV show, he's been drinking champagne to be polite, even though he normally doesn't. Okay, I don't... I don't think that's how alcoholism works, is it? I mean, you can't just, like, drink occasionally and it's fine. Like, it's you're not supposed to at all, right? I mean, this is something Brian has been dealing with in, like, a super hardcore fashion. So that's something that varies really significantly. There are people for whom the only really good solution is never, ever, ever drinking. And there are people who can drink, who can you know, learn to drink moderately and occasionally. 
Um, and it's, it's, it's one of those, so <laughs> this, this is something about which I have, I have extensive feelings as a result of research and, and basically the fact that, that the ubiquity of referrals to 12-step programs in lieu of developing actual budget for more nuanced addiction resources in the U.S., it does a huge amount of damage because those work for some people. That, I never thought about it that way. That's really fascinating. I'm going to have to think. Yeah, but they're free. So there you go. Yeah. Okay, well, Brian Braddock, um, I wish you luck on your journey. I hope this doesn't mess things up for you. You know, any more than all of the rest of the stuff going around you will. Yeah, well, he is a Marvel character. He's a Marvel character, and he's in the next room from, well, Onslaught. Yeah, Onslaught briefly shows up to talk to the Black Queen and says some vague things about a big gathering coming up, and he disappears. So it's essentially our usual Onslaught deal, foreshadowing that isn't really very explained and everything is quite vague. So, Scribe shows up in Brian's room next. She knows Brian used to be Captain Britain, and she begs him for help. Um, the Hellfire Club is going to destroy England. It's going to destroy everything, and she doesn't want that to happen. That's where her family is. Um, and, in fact, what's going to happen is already starting. There's a rising pillar of flame in London, as she explains, that there's a great power beneath the city, and the club has established a radio link between that and somehow the Red Queen's magic. Now, the Red Queen is the one with the pointy fingernails. Exactly, yeah. She also says that the Red King is behind all of this. He's been acting very suspicious, and something's up with him. It's almost like he's not himself. Eh? Eh? Which is how you know that Mountjoy is scribe. Uh, yeah, it's totally misdirection. We'll get to that. Brian, thankfully, packed a suitcase. And in it is his Captain Britain costume. You know, we actually haven't seen that costume since a long time ago, since I think Fatal Attractions when Brian disappeared into the time stream. He's been either Britannic or just Brian Braddock since then. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It's been a very, very long time. Well, the Inner Circle are indeed proceeding with their plan to connect to the evil power underneath London. And in their base, which the narration identifies as the Black Wall... They go along with a couple of Black Air agents that we've seen before to check out their new physical link to the power under London, and it's Douglock's head. It's Douglock's head connected to his body, which has been spun into strands of techno-organic fiber that physically go all the way down under London to this source of power, which is, by the way, a literal giant demon. So, okay, we have phalanx technology coming from Douglock's severed head being magically strung around to a demon. You know what this is? This is a lead up to Days of Future Tense. This is a lead up to the alternate future in Excalibur number 94 that we saw. Well, what I was going to say is that this is Inferno. Oh, yeah, that too. The techno-organic stuff and the demon stuff. Uh, it doesn't actually go in that direction, although that's an awesome link and that's a really good point. But yeah, like, I, I, I do love this because... The stakes are huge, not just because of, you know, what this story itself is telling us, but we've seen the future this might lead to. We've seen everything go utterly to hell because of exactly this stuff. But the wheels are already turning and the Red Queen starts to connect with Douglock and through him the demon. And 
we see a bit of a reveal. We find out who's actually behind those long, long nails and disguise. And it is a character we've seen before. It is Margali Zardos. Right. It is Nightcrawler and Amanda Sefton's witchy, witchy, adoptive mom. A sorceress on the winding way who we found out in like an almost afterthought final page of Excalibur number 85 had convinced her kids to get the soul sword for her so that she could just kill everybody else on her sorceress path and become the most powerful person. And the panel where we find this out is so cool looking. It's bright red and there are these shreds of shadow in the background with snarling pointed teeth, the soul sword smashing through this visual representation of the winding way itself as her skin draws taut and she almost ages as she expands all this power and becomes more like the Margali we've seen before. It is an excellent dark magic-y super villain reveal. It's really, really, really cool. And it doesn't work because whatever is below, that big, like, Lucifer-looking Satan-y, demon-y devil underneath the city is too powerful. And the techno-organic matter that composes Duglock starts absorbing Margali through her fingers and Man, this next panel's even better. Jay, would you like to describe it? Yeah, so we have we have Margali's impassive face, but her eyes have been replaced with teeth. This is a style that those of you who've read Sandman will recognize as the Corinthian, um, and respectively saying, Can't stop it. Let it out. It's so creepy. Oh, I... Jay, I, I kind of really love this arc. Like, I'm mixed on Ellis's run overall, but this arc is really fun. It is, but then it all gets kind of abortively sucked into Onslaught. It sort of does. And that's the thing, because as fires burst up from London streets, and the evil hatred coming up from the demons starts messing people up, and they start attacking each other, and we, see, we even see that demon rising up from beneath the city, like freaking Cernabog from the best part of Fantasia. It's super climactic, and there is kind of one more part to the story— but that part to the story, Excalibur number 100, is also part of Onslaught. And we are so sorry to do this to you listeners, but we're going to be covering that part along with some other Onslaught tie-ins. We're going to be comparing some different X-books that had their own plot lines going on when Onslaught hit in terms of how they deal with integrating Onslaught. So for now, just know that everything is going utterly to hell in a slightly more literal fashion than usual. Yeah, you can think of this episode as building up to Excalibur's pre-Onslaught status quo, which is what we'll be working from once Onslaught actually hits the scene. Indeed. So, I know we haven't finished the arc yet, but Jay, what do you think about this as sort of a, almost a climax of Ellis's run? I enjoy this a lot. I think it hits kind of the genre note that I'm looking for from Excalibur, which is a combination of sort of weird British spy stuff and magic. Completely, yeah. And I appreciate that Ellis is not only pulling from his own continuity elements, I mean, all the Black Air stuff, for instance, Days of Future Tense, but he's also bringing back, you know, Alistair Stewart, some other stuff from Excalibur's history. It's making me miss Die Thomas. Oh, Inspector Die Thomas. I wonder what he's up to. Probably having his life be terrible. Whatever it is, I'm sure he's pretty disgruntled about it. I'd be disappointed if not. What doesn't disappoint me is our listeners, and they've got questions. Jeff asks via email, are the X-Men's affiliated schools accredited? Jeff, they are. Although per Jason Aaron and Chris Pachalo's Wolverine and the X-Men run, there's 
definitely some telepathic manipulation going on to achieve that accreditation. Yeah, I mean, especially given how weird things get in Wolverine and the X-Men, like, no accreditation board would even begin to think that that was a good idea, because, well, it's not a good idea. But we also know, for instance, that students have graduated from the Xavier School and gone on to colleges. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, Beast and Iceman at the very least. Beast, Iceman, Shadowcat. Havoc and Polaris went to college. Yeah, but they went to college before they landed. In fact, Havoc was graduating from college when he first became aware of the Xavier Institute. Oh, right. He was like, oh, hey, what's up, Xavier Institute? Oh, man, it's a giant pharaoh. I wasn't expecting this. Now I have a dumb hat. Then he got rescued and immediately kidnapped by a pterodactyl. I tell ya, that X-Men life. So, Nate asks via email, I am an X-Men-loving library director in southern Minnesota, that's awesome, and I'm trying to put together a core X-Men graphic novel collection with the goal being that a patron could onboard as a new reader. I'm thinking of those X-Men milestones, even though several don't really thrill me, X-Men Season 1, God Loves Man Kills, and House of X, Powers of X. What else should I add? So, those are good choices. Like, I would say you've got the core of the core, especially of classic stuff and the story that leads into the modern era, but there's certainly some stuff I could throw in there. And for anybody unfamiliar, before I dive into this, I should say the X-Men Milestones line, it's the Dark Phoenix Saga plus most of the X-Men crossovers. They're releasing them sequentially, and they're currently up to Age of X, so they've still got a way to go. And yeah, I mean, like you said, Nate... Some of the Milestones' contents are better than others, certainly. So, as far as other stuff that I would consider core stuff, X-Men Mutant Genesis, that's X-Men Volume 2, Number 1, Claremont's Last Story, and essentially the start of the 90s. I think that's an important part of X-Men history that really defined the entire era and was the template for the X-Men cartoon that so many people are familiar with. There are also the Grant Morrison and Joss Whedon runs, which to me are almost one massive run with two different sides. I think those are really iconic. I think they led the X-Men into the next version of the modern era. And as much as I hate to say it because I'm not a fan of the story, House of M is critical to the plot progression of the X-Men story. There's also some other stuff that you might want to consider to introduce people to other aspects of the X-Universe, or other X-Men universes. So, for instance, um, X-Men Season 1 is great. Wolverine Season 1 is a really good X-Men book, um, as is X-Men Season 2. X-Men First Class is a lot of fun. It's, again, another retelling of the Silver Age. And a lot of those are good for younger audiences as well. Those are actually a great intro to X-Men for older kids, I would say. Or even, like, middle-aged kids. I don't know much about kids. How do kids work, Jay? Middle-aged kids. Those would be the kids in their, like, 40s, 50s, 60s. It's like those pictures of Jesus drawn in the Renaissance, you know? He just looks like a middle-aged man, but tiny. Oh, like Cable. Like Cable, exactly. As far as other aspects of the X-Universe that are important, I'm going to recommend the Wolverine miniseries by Chris Claremont and Frank Miller. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's the story that I think really establishes Wolverine as a more complex character with a more complex past than the angry murder uncle that we've seen in the Claremont run before that, and really a lot is built on that specific miniseries. Similarly, the Asgardian Wars, and I'm not just saying this because I love it, but I am saying it some just because I love it, that really situates the X-Men as inhabitants of a wider Marvel universe that includes some really bizarre stuff that has nothing to do with mutants. Fallen Angels is a really fun sort of cross-section slice of a handful of X characters during a very specific era. 
Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it core X-Men stuff at all. Like, you don't need it to onboard, but it could be a really fun way to, yeah, like you said, see that strange cross-section. Yeah, I could see it being a really good point of entry for some readers. Some of the earlier epic collection trade paperbacks for New Mutants and X-Factor from the 1980s could be cool, too. Those are some characters that become a big deal. Obviously, early X-Factor is the original five X-Men. It's a good way to see them in that era. And a lot of plot lines come from there as well. I mean, frickin' Cameron Hodge everything about the new mutants the demon bear saga yeah i think i think those are all terrific terrific choices another book i'd go with and one that just got collected as as a really gorgeous omnibus that i actually really still need to buy um is all new wolverine because it's so heavily rooted in history but is is so so much its own story at the same time and i think it's a pretty good jumping on point for the character and it would also be nice to include something with a female lead, because there's been surprisingly little of that, even in a franchise as gender egalitarian as X-Men. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. We just talked about a bunch of stuff he wrote, but let's hear what the angry Claremontian narrator has to say. Oh, Nick Nazar. Did you really think you could escape your fate by amassing stories, controlling the very commerce of narrative as you reign over your horde? That chance. Better by far to do as Ben Crown and toss yourself haplessly to the winds of chance. It's a much, much easier path to the inevitable reckoning. And with that, the microphone goes to Sexy Nightcrawler and his sexy new look. Mein Freunds, you know this to be true. Excalibur is, and always has been, the sexiest of X-teams. Alan Davis is off drawing clandestine these days, Var, and so we wear turtlenecks and are comically naked less frequently. But why let that stop us? Megan and I have started already. It is time for daring new costumes for the rest of you. Fräulein Fox Peterson... Was ist das plain Jane outfit doing on Muir Isle? It is 1996, and time to let out your inner sexy swashbuckler. Necklines down, hemlines up, and perhaps the steel of a saber to complement what God has given you. There. Irresistible. Perhaps later, a friendly duel so we can each show off that glistening newly bared skin. Und Herr Matlazel. I know grunge is in fashion this decade, but... I am sad to say, you look like you just walked out of one of Excalibur's many plane crashes. Why would you hide that fine form under so much frumpy flannel? If you must cover up, then wear something snug enough to show off that beautiful body, bitte. We have plenty of unstable molecule spandex on Muir Isle, and what purpose could it serve but to hug and highlight every surface and angle for all of Europe to see? And... Was ist Moira? A call from across the pond. It's Shinobi Shaw with questions about... Ugh, unglaublich. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode along with original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% sexy listener-supported.
If you'd like to help us stay sexily on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, tune in for Hawk Talk, and in two weeks, conspiracies will abound. As X-Factor continues to fill out its ranks. 